you open your Bible to Judges chapter 10? Now after Abimelech died, Tola the son of Pua, the son of Dodo, a man of Issachar, arose to save Israel. And he lived in Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim, and he judged Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried in Shamir. The book of Judges gives a lot of attention to some judges and very little to others. Uh, These are the two verses that tell about Tola's judgeship. Interestingly, it says that he arose to save Israel, but it doesn't say what he arose to save Israel from. It's possible that he arose to save Israel from the quote-unquote kingship of Abimelech. That's at least the last thing that has been presented to us. And then in verse 3, after him, Jair the Gileadite arose and judged Israel 22 years. And he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys. And they had 30 cities in the land of Gilead that are called Havath Jair to this day. And Jair died and was buried in Canaan. We don't find much more out about this seventh judge of Israel, Jair. He had 30 sons, and those sons were left evidently by him, each a city and a donkey as a present or an inheritance. So his sons had plenty of wealth and status and prestige. They, he pretty much pampered his sons and, and gave them uh, the, the best things that he could. And you might remember that as we continue on in the story. Then starting in verse 6, we see sort of a summary of the relationship between God and the children of Israel. Then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, served the Baals and the Ashtoreth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the sons of Ammon, and the gods of the Philistines. Thus they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. Again, the Israelites did evil and served seven groups of gods. And the anger of the Lord, verse 7, burned against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the sons of Ammon. And they afflicted and crushed the sons of Israel that year. For 18 years they afflicted all the sons of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in Gilead in the land of the Amorites. And the sons of Ammon crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah, Benjamin, and the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was greatly distressed. The Lord used the Philistines and the Ammonites to punish Israel this time because of their disobedience. The Philistines were on the west side and the Ammonites were on the east side. So he used enemies from both directions. And really it seems to me that this passage is setting us up for the next several chapters. Jephthah will be the deliverer from the Ammonite oppression in chapters 11 and 12. And Samson will start to deliver Israel from the Philistine oppression in chapters 13 to 16. This illustrates one of the features of the book of Judges that a lot of times we may have two different oppressions or two different judges that are saving Israel at the same time. We should not see all of this as just being strictly sequential. That you have um, no central government 
So you can have a particular oppression occurring with a tribe or two on this side while you have an oppression occurring with the tribes on the other side and deliverers and judges operating at the same time in different parts of Israel. So it seems to me like this is sort of the context for the next several chapters. In verse 10, because of their affliction, the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, we have sinned against thee, for indeed we've forsaken our God and served the Baals. Like has become sort of customary, the Israelites cry out to God, begging for deliverance and confessing their sins. This time, the Lord said to the sons of Israel, Did I not deliver you from the Egyptians, the Amorites, the sons of Ammon, and the Philistines? Also, when the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I delivered you from their hands, yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will deliver you no more. Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of your distress. God had delivered them from seven nations that he mentions. And interestingly, there have been seven judges to this point in the story. Just as they had served seven groups of gods in verse 6. God brings the oppressors that are adequate for them to reap what they sow. But this time. God says no when they cry out for deliverance. God says, why don't you go and cry out to the gods that you've chosen, the gods that you've wanted to worship? Just go ahead and let them deliver you, since those are the gods that you love to serve. God has seen through the shallowness of their repentance. He's realized that you know, they just sort of every time he gets them out of a jam, they go right back to these idols. He didn't want to be used by them anymore. This has gone on long enough. Because all they're really doing is they're just turning to God in order to get something out of him. They're just crying out whenever they're in pain. They're not really turning to God because they love God and they want to serve him for him. Their confession actually sounded like they were really repenting, but God has perfect discernment. He sees them as the parasites that they really were. So he says, you just cry out to your gods. Just go ahead and let them deliver you. Well, the sons of Israel in verse 15 said to the Lord, We've sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to thee. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he could bear the misery of Israel no longer. Israel says, Oh, no, no, we, we've sinned. No, we're sorry this time. Why, they even go so far as to take those gods away. But I believe they're still trying to manipulate God. And I think later uh, chapters in Judges will show that. They're really not devoted to God. They're just doing whatever they think they've got to do to get God to, to get them out of this jam. You know, it, it's really, we can sometimes deceive ourselves with this matter of superficial repentance, with going through the motions. I mean, when we say the right words, and when we even take these gods away, it really makes it look like they're repenting. 
It's a pretty convincing performance. But God sees through their charade. The words are easy to speak, and when, when you're in a jam, it's even easy to throw out the idol gods and really cry out to him. Now, we've got to see that there's a balance here. It is true, and we talked a good bit about this this week, it's true that sometimes horrible crises are what help people turn to God sincerely. It's not automatically superficial just because it was a terrible disaster that caused us to humble ourselves and really serve God. But on the other hand, there are a lot of times when people, and maybe we can see ourselves in this, we only turn to God when we're hurting, and as soon as the pain's over, we're right back to our old lifestyle. Now, when that happens, we need to stop and analyze, are we really serving God because we want to serve God and love him, or are we only trying to get ourselves out of a jam? In verse 17, the sons of Ammon were summoned, and they camped in Gilead. And the sons of Israel gathered together and camped in Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the sons of Ammon? He shall become head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. There's several interesting things about this. It reminds you a lot of Judges chapter 1 where it came about after the death of Joshua that the sons of Israel inquired of the Lord, saying, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? Now they're asking the question, Who is the man who will begin the fight to fight against the sons of Ammon? The question is similar. Do you see the difference? As you look back at 1-1, and then you compare 10-17, what's the difference between those two? Obviously, a different enemy. But there's a more fundamental difference. In chapter 1, who did they inquire of? They inquired of the Lord who ought to go up first. Here in 1017, 1018, who is it that they ask this question of? They speak this to one another. They are seeking to appoint for themselves a deliverer. As far as I can see, God was not the one they were consulting. And I don't know that he was really behind their choice of deliverer in this case. This is their own engineering feat. And what they do is they offer the carrot of leadership. We'll serve anybody who will volunteer and will get the Ammonites off of our back. We'll make you our head. Do you notice who didn't volunteer? The most logical choice, it seems to me, in the context of what we've been reading would be the 30 pampered sons of Jair. But usually sons like that are not the ones who would volunteer in a uh, dangerous crisis. So they try to find somebody themselves. Chapter 11 and verse 1, Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a valiant warrior, but he was the son of a harlot, and Gilead was the father of Jephthah. And Gilead's wife bore him sons, and when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you're the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, 
And worthless fellows gathered themselves about Jephthah, and they went out with him. There are a lot of similarities between the story of Jephthah and the story of Abimelech. You can pick out some of those for yourself. But Jephthah was the son of Gilead and a harlot. And when the legitimate sons of Gilead grew up, they expelled their half-brother. It looks to me like they're... The point behind that is they didn't want to have to divide the inheritance with him. They were greedy. And since he wasn't full-blooded brother, they said, you don't have any part with us. And, and they kicked him out. They didn't want to share that inheritance. But now, verse 4, it came about after a while that the sons of Ammon fought against Israel. And it happened when the sons of Ammon fought against Israel that the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Top. And they said to Jephthah, come and be our chief that we may fight against the sons of Ammon. Isn't that interesting? They show how badly they are hurting in this Ammonite crisis because they even resort to Jephthah, the very guy they've kicked out because they didn't want to share the inheritance with him. Do you hear an echo? They're treating Jephthah just about the same way they treated God. They really don't want to have anything to do with him until they really get in a jam, and then suddenly it's Jephthah, come save us. And they offer to make him, it's interesting, verse 6, they offer to make him chief. Now, that's a different word than what they'd use in 10.18, making him head. I think they're not offering him everything they'd offered in general. We'll just make you a chief, Jephthah, if you'll come and save us. They don't want to give him too much. Well, verse 7, then Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me from my father's house? So why have you come to me now when you're in trouble? <laughs> That's a pretty good question, it seems to me. It's basically the question God asked. You didn't want to have anything to do with me until you got in trouble. <laughs> Why are you coming to, now to me? The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, For this reason we have now returned to you, that you may go with us and fight with the sons of Ammon and become a head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you take me back to fight against the sons of Ammon, and the Lord gives them up to me, will I become your head? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord is witness between us. Surely we will do as you have said. Then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and chief over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. Jephthah has a pretty good bargaining position right here, and he nails it down. You're going to let me be your head if I fight the Ammonites off for you. And they agree. And in some ways, I think you can say that was deserved. If he does deliver them from the Ammonites, they ought to serve him. And if God delivered them as he had over and over again, they ought to have served him after all he'd done. So in, while I think in human terms, both Jephthah and the Israelites are pretty self-centered about what they're doing, there's another sense in which Jephthah more or less represents the Lord. And the same procedure, the same mentality that they were using in serving the Lord, they were using 
with Jephthah, just turning to them in a crisis. When they couldn't handle it on their own, they'd call them back out of the closet, out of, out of wherever they banished them, and say, okay, now we'll serve you. Just come and deliver us. Now, do you see some applications for us in this? I thought Gary Henry really helped us a lot this week in thinking about, you know, why do we serve God? And what are we really serving him for? I'd like for you to, to just think about three different ways people can serve the Lord. Some people serve the Lord to make other people think that they're spiritual. Folks like that are very concerned with their image. You know, they try to make sure that they look good to other people. Now, they justify that by saying, well, you know, you want to be a good example. You want to be a good light to other people. But really, that's all the further it goes. It's just a matter of trying to impress others with spirituality. And thus, those people become very concerned about the parts of their life that everybody can see. The external things, what they wear, what they say, how they line up with the accepted standards and traditions. And maybe some of us have been like that. And you can tell it because when we're not around other Christians, we're not quite the same person. And you can tell it because the part of Christianity that we really emphasize is the part that's shallow and shows good. Now that's a very inadequate way of serving the Lord. But then some people serve the Lord secondly to make him think that we're spiritual. We say very good things to him. We perform elaborate ceremonies. We go to great lengths to try to look spiritual to God. Especially when we're in trouble and when we need help. And when we feel like there's something we want out of God. Now that's kind of where the Israelites are here. But you can tell that that's all there is to it. Because when they don't think they need him, then they quit serving him. Now the third way to serve God and the way we need to do it. Is to serve him because we want to serve him. Because we love him. And because he is God. And because we are committed on principle to serve God day in and day out, regardless of the situation. We don't look at him, as Gary said, just for our, the benefits we can get out of him. It's not a selfish thing. It's not a crisis-driven thing. It's something that every day, everywhere, we think about what's God's will, and we seek him, and we serve him. That's surely not what the Israelites were doing here with God. And I think what Jephthah said to them is really right. Why, why do you want me now? You, you, didn't, you didn't have any interest in me before. You know, you drove me out. Why all of a sudden have, has Jephthah become the one you want? And I think that's what God must be saying to us sometimes and thinking about us. Why all of a sudden did you want to turn to me? Not that a crisis can't motivate us to serve God from the heart, but we need to be committed. We serve God. 
whether we think we need him for something right now or not. That's what God wanted in the Israelites. And that's what constantly they failed to give. Are you willing to come to God and serve him, not just because it's a bad day today and you think he might help you out of it, but because you're committed to him. That's the kind of commitment he wants. And if you need to do that, won't you come while we stand and say?